Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all those who are joining us this morning via our live stream. We're grateful for each and every one of you. Also, uh, the venue service meeting right down the hall and Reach Church DeSoto. Grateful for each and every one of you. Know this construction's going very well on Reach Church Paola, and we hope this year to launch that campus in Paola. It's going to be an exciting time. And uh, you be praying for us as we move in that direction. I want to let you know a few things before we get into God's word this morning. Uh, Number one, I want to let you know that we've entered into a partnership with an organization called One for Israel. Uh, You're going to be learning more about this organization and the work that they're doing and how we will partner with them. But one of the ways in which we'll have an opportunity to partner with them is to go see them. And so this year, November 6th to the 16th, uh, I'll be leading a trip to Israel. Uh, We'll be going to Israel, spending about eight days, nine days there in country with some travel on the front end and the back end. If you'd like information about that trip, go to the website. Uh, You can sign up. There'll be a registration page there. Um, I'm incredibly excited about this. More than that, I'm incredibly excited about our partnership with One for Israel. And there's some neat information that you'll be seeing as we move forward. There's so much going on here at the church right now. A lot going on this month in January. Uh, We have men's worship night, the 24th. Women's worship night and dwell, the 26th. Um, we've got Moms Connect on the 23rd, and there's a lot of mission trips getting ready to be sent out. Uh, boy, it is a fun time to be a part of the church, and I hope that you're getting plugged in. If there's one thing you should know about us as a church, we're passionate about the gospel. And we're passionate about taking the gospel to the nations. I wish you knew all that we were doing in all the many ways. We try to keep you aware of all those opportunities and all those ways on a regular basis but you need to get plugged in. You'll never really grow passionate about God's mission to reach the nations until you go on a mission trip yourself. Let nothing hold you back this year. You find a trip, you go on one. You feel the power of God work through you to touch the life of another individual and you'll be changed forever. You sign up, you get a part of God's mission. Well, this morning we turn our attention again uh, to King Saul. Uh, As we start, I wanna read you a story, Uh, Asa Turner. In the 1840s, the first Presbyterian minister in the state of Iowa, it was an Indian territory at that time, wrote the American Home Missionary Society that he needed some people to come down to Iowa to help him in his area of missions. And so 12 Andover Seminary students responded, known as the Iowa Band. And Asa Turner wrote back, and he sent this letter back, uh, and it was a letter that could only be written by a man who had spent a lot of time in Iowa. But listen to what he said. He says, I'm happy to hear that a reinforcement from Andover is talked of, and I hope it will not end in talk, but I fear it will. Don't come here expecting a paradise. Come prepared to expect small things, rough things. Lay aside all your dandy whims that boys learn in college and take a few lessons from your grandmothers before you come. Get clothes that are firm and durable, something that will go through the hazel brush without tearing. Get wives of the old Puritan stamp, those who can pale a cow and churn the butter. Don't you love old Asa Turner? And be proud of a jean dress or a checked apron. But it's of no use to answer any more questions, for I expect to see none of you west of the Mississippi River as long as I live. (laughs) He spent way too much time in Iowa. Uh, 
But what did Asa Turner know? He knew that these guys, they signed up, they talk a big game, they probably learned a lot of stuff, but they've never really been tested. They've never really faced hardship, and that's when we'll find out who they really are. Saul really hasn't been tested. He's had this incident with the Ammonites and Nahash, but he's not really been tested in his official capacity, in his job description that God had given to him, but he will now. He's been established as king uh, by God, but the means of that establishment was less than ideal. The nation has rejected God as their king. They wanted a God they could see with their eyes. They felt like, I truly believe, they felt like if we have a king and we've got a professional army, then we'll be secure. And listen to me, what God was going to teach the nation of Israel and what, what he teaches every one of us, if you look for security and hope in anything other than God, you'll always be let down. The only thing that is truly secure, the only thing that will never let you down in this world is God. And so he's teaching that, but they've rejected him, and God says, okay. What Samuel says to them, it's not like God wasn't working out for you. God had always been faithful, never let you down. You made a bad choice, and Samuel says, that was then, this is now. We're going to give you a mulligan, second chance. I'm going to let you have your kings, what you wanted, but here's the deal, you got to follow me. The king and the nation, you have to submit yourselves to me. you got to follow me. If you do, I'll be with you. I'll bless you. But then you'll remember the very last verse of chapter 12. If you don't, you're going to be swept away. And God gives them a great promise, but he also gives them a stern warning. He gives them a threat, essentially. And listen to me. God follows through on his threats as much as he does his promises. See, if God didn't follow through on his threats, we wouldn't know that he could follow through on his promises. God warns them, you gotta trust me. You gotta obey me. And then comes the test. And what I want us to see this morning is what God does in Saul's life is what God will do in all of our lives. In some measure or form as we seek to follow him. With that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this passage. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so plainly to us. Lord, we recognize this as a sacred moment in which we as a body of believers, a family of faith, all having submitted our lives to you, those of us that know you. And we humble ourselves before your word this morning, asking you to speak to us. God, we desperately need to hear your voice. We hear a lot of voices in our lives. God, we pray that the voice that would be most loud, most clear in our lives, would be your voice. So Lord, speak to us by means of your spirit this morning. Let nothing I say that is of my own source, God, that is anything that's Chad-breathed, I pray that it would just fall. But I pray your God-breathed word would implant itself into our hearts this morning and draw us closer to you and grow our faith and our trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me, verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, uh, when Saul was 30 years old, uh, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. In my translation, the words 30 and 40 are put into italics, letting you know that they're not in the manuscripts. These are additions, interpretive additions that come uh, later. And there's a lot of uh, controversy over what these verses mean and what they actually say. They're a little bit difficult to translate. But literally, it would say that Saul was a, 
son of a year old is literally what it would say, and that he reigned uh, blank two years. Uh, you can do your own research on these things. I'm not sure that it has a huge effect on how we interpret the passage, but I believe the original, what we see in the manuscripts, is actually what God intended, that he was a son of a year old. Not that he was one year old, but that from the time of his private anointing with uh, Samuel in chapter 10 uh, to his official announcement of king at Gilgal was a year. So he's been technically in office for a year, and then he'll reign two more years. And that will uh, be from Gilgal to chapter 15 when uh, he will fail multiple tests. And finally, God will officially say, uh, I'm going to strip this kingship uh, from you, but you can do your own research. That's my own personal interpretation. But I only say that to let you know that a lot of these things that are occurring here are not occurring over a great span of time. They're occurring over a very close proximity of time. And that's important because a lot of commentators will tell us that the job description that was given to Saul had been forgotten by Saul. And let me remind you of Saul's job description. Saul was given really three critical things that he was called to do. Number one, he was raised up by God primarily to deliver Israel. Israel from the Philistines. That's what Samuel said. That's what God told Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 9. The primary purpose of God raising up this king was to deliver them from the Philistines. The Philistines have at this point become an occupying force in the nation. We see them having set up these garrisons and they would, they would occupy the nation and they would control the nation. In fact, you see at the end of 13 that they took a control of the, the metal industry. And now that the, the Israelites have to come to the Philistines, to even sharpen their farm implements and they can have no weapons. And when they do come to sharpen their implements, they actually have to pay the Philistines to do it for them. And so the Philistines have become this occupying force. And remember, the nation of Israel was not intended to be a conquering nation. They don't take over more land. They protect that which God has given to them. And here's this nation that's now occupying what God has given to them. And he raises up King Saul primarily to deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. That's his number one job. And up to this point, he's done absolutely nothing with the Philistines. You'll also remember that when God uh, gave his call to Saul, Samuel told him, you're going to come. And this occurs in chapter 10, 14, 15, and 16. In those verses, if you want to go back and read again, and you should... But there God tells uh, Saul that you're going to come to this Philistine garrison. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. There'll be these prophets. You'll start prophesying. And then he says, do whatever is in your heart is to do. And I'm with you. And I take that to mean in that moment when the Spirit of God came upon Saul at that moment in the presence of that Philistine garrison, and he was told, do whatever comes upon your heart, I take that to mean he was supposed to go against that Philistine garrison. This occupying force. He was intended to attack them, I believe, at that moment. Uh, but he doesn't do it. But God says, when you come against that Philistine garrison, they're going to get angry. And then he tells them to go where? He tells them, you go to Gilgal. You head straight to Gilgal. Why? Gilgal it was a remote, it was a secure location. You go to Gilgal. So he's, he's raised up to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Whenever he comes against the Philistines, he's supposed to go down to Gilgal. He's to summon the people there. And then the third thing is he's to wait seven days for Samuel. Why is he to wait seven days for Samuel? Because God is letting King Saul know that you are not autonomous. They wanted a king like the nations. And God says, you're gonna, give a, you're gonna have a king, but he's not gonna be a king like the nations. He's not autonomous. The kings of the nations, they did pretty much whatever they wanted to do. Not Israel's king. 
He only did what God told him to do. He didn't move unless God directed him. You know, we'll see a little later in 1 Samuel, uh, or in 2 Samuel 5, um, David is told, before you go out into battle, don't you go until you hear the marching of the troops in the treetops, meaning you hear the angels of God going before you, then you're allowed to go. But you don't do anything on your own until I tell you it's okay to go forward. And so Saul is there told, you wait seven days, you wait for Samuel, because you are not on your own. You are subject and you're to be submissive to God and you only operate under his direction. So that's what he's told to do. Deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. When the, when the war breaks out, you go down to Gilgal, you summon the people, you wait seven days. Samuel come, he'll offer the offerings and then God will be with you. Sounds really good, sounds really simple. Well, let's see how he does. Look at verse two. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Uh, it's interesting here because the nation of Israel, according to numbers, the way it was supposed to work is that every man over the age of 20 was technically in service in military. And so what would happen anytime you have a skirmish, anytime there is a, there's a need for them to defend their territory, they would sound the shofar and every man over the age of 20 would show up and you'd go to battle. Well, here now Saul initiates a standing army. He conscripts men. Why does he do this? Uh, a lot of conjecture on this, but you'll remember what Samuel told the people. One day you're going to have a king, and the king, when he starts to get off base, one of the things he'll do is he'll begin to take from you, won't he? He'll take your sons. He'll take your money. And here we see uh, Saul begin to conscript an army, handpick. They're going to serve with me, a professional standing army. If you'll see Saul, he's always looking for security in something other than God. So he's going to conscript this army. He's got 2,000 with him, 1,000 with Jonathan. Look at verse 3. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. So what uh, Saul was intended to do, we know now his son Jonathan will do. You're going to see this moving forward, that Jonathan will be the anti-type to Saul. He will be the one who will trust in God. And he takes the initiative against the Philistines. And he stirs up a nest. And so Saul, he blows the shofar, the trumpet, and they head to Gilgal, just as God told him to do. He's doing pretty good here. And look at verse uh, uh, 4. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of, garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Notice the first part of verse 4. Heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison. Saul didn't do it. Jonathan did. But this is what happens when you control the press. You can take control or take credit for things you didn't even do. And uh, it happened even back then. Saul takes credit for this. He summons them. Look at verse 5. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash east of Beth-Avon. And so the Philistines, they amassed their army, this enormous army, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, people like the sand on the seashore. 
It's a show of force. We see this in, in foreign militaries. They, they, will, they will sometimes parade their military with all their rockets and missiles and, and military and, and tanks. And they will parade them and they want the world to see. And they will do all this stuff to show the world this is how powerful we are. They do it as a means of intimidation against their enemies. So here the Philistines, they amass their army, hoping that it will intimidate the people of God, that we are much larger than you. We, we, are, we are far greater when it comes to military advancements and weaponry. There, there's an overwhelming show of force here, and it works. Look at verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. As soon as I read that, that they hid themselves, it reminds me of another individual that we saw not long ago who was hiding himself amongst the luggage. And who was it? It was Saul. Remember this. As goes the leadership, so goes the nation, so goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the organization. The nation is becoming like its leader. Fearful. The people of God were only intended to fear one thing, and that was being unfaithful to God. And here they are fearful of what they can see with their eyes. Verse 7, also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. So you've got soldiers that are now going AWOL. This huge massive force of Philistines gathers against them and they are scared. They're running scared. They're trembling. In verse 8, now he, await, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. There's a question here. Some will ask, did he wait seven days, or did he wait six days and 23 hours? We're not sure. But he was told, wait seven days, and even more than this, he was told, you wait for Samuel. Samuel will come. He'll offer the sacrifices. And the blessing of God will be upon you and you'll gain victory. And Saul looks at his circumstances. He sees this massive army coming down upon him. His men are fading away. We learn a little later in chapter 13, his army is whittled down to 600. 600 men. And remember this, none of them have weapons except Saul and Jonathan. They're the only ones who have swords. So basically you've got a bunch of farmers with pitchforks going against a professional army with chariots and horsemen and he sees this coming upon him he sees what's happening he sees his men running and he's faced with a choice will what he knows in his heart and what God has told him will his faith in God and his belief in God's word will it overwhelm his circumstances or will his circumstances overwhelm his faith and you look at this and you say, what is God doing? What is God doing? It almost looks as if God is setting Saul up for failure. What is happening here? And, and this is where I want you to pause because what I think we see God doing here with Saul is what God will do with every one of us who says, I want to follow you, Lord. There was a new beginning. There was a fresh start at Gilgal. Will you follow me? Yes, we will. And guess what God does? God brings a test into their life. You say you're following me. You say you believe in me. And God begins to work to bring a test into their life to see if they really trust what they say they believe. 
I want you to look in the New Testament. Look over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn over there to 1 Peter chapter 1 because I think we see here a biblical principle. I wanted to break this chapter into two segments because I really wanted to hone in on this biblical principle that is so critical for every one of us that's seeking to follow God. It's a biblical principle that we see in the Old Testament with every great man or woman of faith. All the New Testament writers seem to agree with this biblical principle. The apostles agreed with this biblical principle. You see it played out in 1 Peter, look down in verse 6. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is reminding them in the midst of their trials, he's reminding them of their, their faith in God. Blessed be the God and Father who, who according to his great mercy, causes us to be born again. He talks to them about their, their living hope in Christ, and he talks to them about their inher- eternal inheritance. And then he says in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials knowing that the testing or proving of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though refined by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith, it's that, that wording, that exact same wording, if you turn back to your left in James chapter 1, James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. See, here's the biblical principle that all of us need to, need to know, we need to understand, you've got to get what, what Peter What James, what we see played out throughout Scripture is if you go all in with God, if you claim his promise and you say, God, I want to follow you. God, I want to be your man or woman. I want to to follow you. I want to live for you. In the moment that you make that decision, you need to understand that God will go to work to bring trials and tests in your life that test your faith, that prove your faith. We see this with almost every biblical character. We can all think of the big ones. Think of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, they've gone all in. We're with you, Lord. And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants lie as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Actually, the same exact wording of the Philistines here. Promise made to Abraham. The problem is Abraham and Sarah are looking into retirement communities. They're looking at the villages in Jericho and the golf courses. They're looking at retirement. And God says, you're going to be a nation. And Abraham gets excited. They're trying to have kids. And guess what happens? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They're getting older. The promise is still there. God has told them. But nothing's happening. Sarah's getting older. Abraham's getting rolled older. The situation looks absolutely hopeless. And guess what they do? They take matters into their own hands. Maybe God needs some help fulfilling this promise. They bring Hagar into the circumstance, and guess what happens? It's a mess. We're still dealing with that mess in the Middle East today. It's a mess because they tried to manipulate the circumstance, and they fail. That's an F. But guess what God does? I'm not done with them. We'll give them another test because eventually Abraham and Sarah do have a son, Isaac. The promised child. And guess what God will say to Abraham? I want you to take that child that you prayed for, that I've finally given to you, and I want you to offer him on the mountain unto me. And you remember Abraham takes Isaac, and Isaac says, I see everything, but 
but where, well, I see the wood, but where, where, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. And he goes up on that mountain, and just before he's about to take the life of the child, God provides a ram in the thicket. And you remember what God says? Now I know, Abraham, now I know that you've withheld nothing from me and that you fear me alone. Now, did God already know that Abraham feared him alone? Did God know what Abraham would do? Yes, he did. But he longed to see it demonstrated in in Abraham's life in a physical way. But even more than that, he was growing Abraham's faith. Because don't you think when Abraham was coming down from that mountain, he left with a strengthened faith that God will always come through on his promises. He walked down that mountain knowing, listen, I go God's way. I do exactly what he says. God always comes through. We see it in in David's life. We're going to pick up the story of David in in a few chapters. And and David, uh, amazing, he'll be anointed as king. And guess what happens? Virtually nothing. He'll do a little service with Saul. But for the most part, he'll be on the run. And everything in his life looks absolutely contrary to what God said he would do in David's life. And it'll be 14 years before he becomes king. But God had to know in David's life, will you trust me? Will you be faithful? Are you going to try to manipulate the circumstances? We see it in Joseph's life. He knows he's going to be over his brothers. God gives him these dreams And then he finds himself in a pit. And then he finds himself in a prison. And everything seems absolutely contrary to what God said he would do. And God is testing him. Will you trust me? I hear what you say. I hear that you're all in. But do you trust me? And God goes to work to bring circumstances into his life that in many ways are absolutely contrary to what God said he would do in his word and his promise. And we got to find out, will these men and women, will they trust me? And listen to me, it's very easy for us. I I read this story of Saul, and you know what goes through my mind? You knucklehead, just trust God. Could you wait just another hour? You know what God called you to do, but listen to me. If we look at this as easy, we're missing it. Because one of the things I've learned about following God and obeying him, it's simple. God does not make this difficult to understand. Most of what we're called to do in the big areas of of our life, he makes incredibly plain. His truth and his word is not that complicated. But at the same time, is it easy? It's rarely easy. In fact, more often than not, you'll be obeying God, what he's clearly said, in the midst of a situation and circumstance that seems absolutely contrary to what God has called you to do. Any reasonable individual looking at Saul's situation would have said, Saul, of course you should offer the sacrifice. Following God in that circumstance was not reasonable. It was difficult. In fact, sometimes you'll be in the situation, I could only imagine the anger and the frustration of Saul. This is what I think. Because if I, I try to put myself in the shoes of the people in the story, if I'm Saul, I'm mad. I'm ticked off. Because the preacher's late probably off at a barbecue, running his mouth with some stranger, and he could care less what I'm doing here, and I'm about to die. Nice, easy life for you, Samuel. You're just roaming around, kissing babies, and 
doing all your good stuff while I'm fighting the battles and I'm about to die out here and these men are about to die and you're not showing up. And you know what I think Saul thought? God, do you not even hear me? Do you not even see what's going on here? Do you not care about me? And I can almost guarantee you many of you have felt that exact same way in the circumstances of your life. You're going through a circumstance or a situation that's testing your faith and it feels like God doesn't even hear your prayers. You remember the disciples? They got out on, Jesus sent them to the other side of the sea. They were gonna be tested. You're gonna get, who told them to go out on the sea? Jesus did. Listen to me. Make no mistake about who's in control of the circumstances of our life. God will intentionally put us into situations. He intentionally puts the disciples in a situation that almost kills them. In fact, they think they're going to die. And they're experienced fishermen. If they think they're going to die, they're probably going to die. And guess what Jesus is doing? He's asleep. And they go to him. And I think scripture is so kind to them. They say, do you not care? I wish I could have heard the way they spoke to Jesus. I think they were so frustrated. Listen to me, some of you may be frustrated right now. Listen to me, God is big enough to handle it. It's not working out like you thought it would. And following God hasn't been as easy as you thought it would. And you're in the midst of a test. Listen to me, cling to God. You may ask, well, what do I get if I pass the test? What do I achieve? What do I gain for myself? Well, it's incredibly rich. Two things that are important for you to remember in the midst of your test, whatever you're going through, is you're just clinging to God. It could be in your marriage. It could be in your, with raising your children. It, it could be in your schooling, your vocation, in your job. I don't know where it is, but, but in your workplace, you're seeking to be a man or woman of, of integrity, and you are fearful I know some of you are in occupational situations right now. You're fearful. If you don't compromise, you're not going to advance. If you don't compromise in certain areas, you're not going to get that job promotion. And everything that's reasonable inside your mind is telling you, go ahead and compromise. It's not that big of a deal. Listen to me. It's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. What do I gain? Well, James tells us, let in, uh, the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work so that you may per be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The first thing it gains you is it enriches your walk with Jesus. You know what I love to do? I love to sit with old timers that have been following God for a long time. They've been following God through trials and different testings that I can't even begin to fathom. And you know what I learned about those men of faith? They'll just begin to tell you of all the times God just showed up. They were faithful to God, God showed up. They were faithful to God, they weren't faithful to God and they learned the consequences. And you'll know these individuals, men and women of faith who've been walking with God for a long time because they don't get too worked up about anything. Because they've learned that God is always faithful. Listen, it'll enrich your faith. It'll grow your trust in God. The further you go, the more you learn. Boy, following God is fun. It may be unreasonable. It may not always be easy, but it grows my faith. But then Peter says, that's not what Peter says. Peter doesn't talk about how it enriches your life here. But Peter tells you about what it gains one day. Because he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, knowing that... Um, 
the testing of your faith being more precious than gold, even though refined by fire, may be found to what? To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is good. We studied this in Revelation 19. You can go look at it this afternoon. In Revelation 19, we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to be wearing fine linen. And John tells us that that fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. But I do believe this with all my heart. That one day when we stand before God, Jesus will acknowledge us for those times when we stayed true to him against all odds. When we stood with Jesus, when everything was against us. And Peter is reminding you, listen, you may stand with Jesus and obey him, and it might not gain you anything in this world. In fact, I'll tell you today, you stand with Jesus and you follow him, it may cost you. But it will also gain for you a value that is greater than any treasure you could ever know in this world. In fact, as I thought about that this week, I may be going... These are always my dangerous moments. But I thought about this. God, to some extent, will acknowledge the righteous acts of the, of the saints. I wonder this week, because in the Old Testament, God judges nations. I wonder at that marriage supper if there won't be acknowledgement of churches. I just wondered if God would say, all those that have been a part of Lenexa Baptist Church, And he acknowledges us for whether or not we were faithful. In our day, in our moment, were we faithful to the Lord? Really briefly, how do you do this? Some of you are saying, boy, it's so tough. How do you do this? How do you make sure in your life that the circumstances don't overwhelm your faith, but your faith overwhelms the circumstances? Can I give you a couple of hints? Just remember a few things. You're gonna see these principles played out as we look at the next few chapters. But number one, remember, God plus one equals a majority. God plus one equals a majority. And it's not even really about the one, it's about God. But if God is with you, you're going to be just fine. Uh, you remember the Israelites, they were in to go in the promised land. And God told them, I'm going to give you this land, it's going to be yours. And they said, we're not going to play the fool here, let's, let's start a committee. Always a bad sign. Let's get a committee together. And we'll go scout out the land. And you remember, the majority said what? Can't do it. It's too tough. Two guys. Nobody remembers the 10 who said no. Everybody knows Joshua and Caleb. Because you know what Joshua and Caleb understood? The majority's not always right. And you will have people in your life as you seek to cling to God, good, well-meaning people who will tell you you're being unreasonable and you need to compromise. Remember this, God plus one always equals a majority. In the midst of these situations, you've got to remember this. 
every day in our lives. I believe this with all my heart. God gives us almost every day in our life, God gives us incredibly, incredible opportunities that are carefully disguised as unsolvable problems. Did you hear that? God gives us opportunities that are disguised as problems. And we as God's people, when we see our problems, we need to not see the problem, but we need to see the potential of what God can do and how he can get the glory, which is what I think the difference was between the 10 spies who said we can't do it and Joshua and Caleb. It wasn't that Joshua and Caleb didn't see these giant-sized people But what they saw was more than those people. They saw what God could do in the midst of that circumstance. It's like Gideon. Listen, Saul had 600 men. Gideon only had 300. But listen, Gideon saw it as an opportunity for God to show off. And then finally, remember this. It never has anything to do with your abilities. God's ability to move in your life is not based on your abilities. It's based on your faithfulness. To the degree that you're faithful to God will be the degree to which he demonstrates his glory in your life. Um, What did Paul say, 1 Corinthians? uh, Let a man regard us in this way as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. God has given us one job. Be faithful. The goal of our life, the measure of success, you want biblical success? It's never based on your abilities. It's never based on what you achieve. It's based on whether or not you are faithful to God. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Father, we thank you for your word this morning that speaks so plainly to us. Lord, I pray for those that are in the midst of a test, a trial right now in their life. God, I pray that they would see past the problem to the potential of what you can do. I pray that they would cling to you no matter how adverse, no matter how hopeless or helpless the circumstance may feel, I pray that they would trust in you with all their heart. They'd lean not upon their own understanding in all their ways. They'd acknowledge you and you would make their path straight. God, for the one who this morning, they think in their life about the times when they knew what you told them to do and they failed. I pray that they would know this this morning very clearly. You're a God of grace. Abraham, oh, he made so many mistakes. You kept giving him opportunities. Saul, he's going to get more opportunities. He will not do well, but you will continue to extend opportunities to him, and you'll continue to extend opportunities in our life to grow our faith to draw us close to you. And I pray that that person, I pray that they wouldn't feel regret. I pray that they would repent. And I pray that they would turn to you knowing that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would know the first test is whether or not they'll trust in you. For this world, oftentimes trusting in you, giving their life to you seems like the most unreasonable thing to do. It appears to them maybe that in laying down their life and following you, that somehow not life will, will be boring, that righteousness will lead to constant sourness. God, I pray that they would know this morning that's a lie of Satan. There's no more joy-filled life than knowing the grace of God and walking in fellowship with him. Lord, I pray that they would trust in you this morning and know your salvation. Lord, we love you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.